Turn to James 5. Let's do this thing. I'm also going to read uh, two verses in, in chapter 1 if you want to flip over there. Those are verse 9 and 10. But this is James 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And then from chapter 1, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, in the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you speak to us. We thank you that your word delivers to us sweet wounds that you cut away at our hearts, you prick us, but only that our hearts might grow and expand beneath your blessing. So Father, I pray that our hearts would be humble and soft, that we would receive your word, and that we would respond in it. God, we pray that your word will bear much fruit this morning in our lives and in the whole world. Amen. So James, remember, is writing this discourse in the context of significant famine and poverty in his region. So a lot of these issues that have come up that he's addressed one by one are within that, that sphere of the poor being very poor. And those who are rich have often gotten it with ill-gotten gains. They've gotten it on the backs of the poor. And by and large, the people who are hearing and reading this are poor. Now, we know that the whole, the whole community of people who are hearing this are not poor because we have the section that was last week that was just before this where James tells these merchants in the middle of these Christian communities that they're not allowed to just live their merchant lives completely with their own sense of control of the world and their own mission in the world and their objectives and their desires to enrich themselves. So we know from this book that there are rich people within the community, and we know from the, the New Testament at large that the church has always been propped up, uh, fueled by, uh, aided by the wealthy, that there was people, wealthy women often, uh, some wealthy men that traveled with Jesus or supported the apostles from afar, or we think the, the way the church grew in new cities with the, was that wealthy people would host churches in their larger homes. So we, we know that the wealthy have always been a part of the Christian church, and so James uh, accounts for that as well. But this particular warning in which he's speaking is not aimed at those people. 
In James 4, he's talked to the wealthy of the Christian community. And in James 5, he sort of pivots and speaks to the wealthy outside of the Christian community. And there's a couple reasons why we think that, and I won't get into all of that. But basically, his vocabulary changes significantly. You probably picked it up as soon as I started reading. Kind of a slap in the face there. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That's what everybody comes to church to hear, that kind of stuff. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And this, this is James speaking to a world where the rich are ruling in power. And their, their, their wealth is not necessarily and entirely gotten because they are astute investors or they're great business people. But the way that they acquired have also been often been by oppressing and pushing down people beneath them. Because we've seen this, James is concerned with this mentality of a closed world, where all that there is in the world is a set, a set, a set, uh, uh, oh man, that phrase is, there's only so much stuff in the world. That's what that phrase that I can't remember means. There's only so much stuff in the world. It's a zero-sum game. If, if I have, then you cannot. If you have, then, then I cannot. And James is fighting against this mentality, but the world lives within this mentality. So if you want to be rich, of course you have to push down those around you so that you can boost yourself up and acquire more. And that's exactly what's happened in this Roman world that James is addressing. That's why he talks about how these people have hoarded wealth at the expense of their lower class service. These people that you have defrauded from their wages. And James is telling the, the watching world who for whatever reason may come across this or, or may read this from a Christian friend or to encourage the church that God sees the outside world, James says God is watching what is going on. And do not be fooled. Do not be fooled. Because the things that you have loved and you have trampled others to hold on to, those things are passing away. They are fading and falling apart already. He talks about how their garments are, are, are wearing and fraying, and he uses this imagery of rust on gold and silver. Even though gold and silver doesn't rust, what he's telling them is your stuff is already falling apart. And God is watching you and how you have acquired your wealth. And there will be judgment for what you have done and for what you continue to do. What he anticipates, what James anticipates, is this inversion of circumstances where the poor will get their reward that they do not now have and the rich have already and are already experiencing the only reward that they will ever have. And one day they will fall into final and complete poverty from which they cannot escape. And this, this idea is, is actually all throughout the New Testament. This is the way that Jesus often talks about wealth. Jesus will, will speak blessing in the Beatitudes on the poor and the poor in spirit, depending on which version of the Beatitudes you're reading and which gospel. Sometimes it just says, blessed are the poor. Sometimes it says the poor in spirit. And those things are more linked maybe than we fully appreciate. 
And in Luke's Gospel, there are woes that follow. And what Jesus says is, woe to the rich, for they receive the reward now. And Jesus will tell a parable of the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man who lives for himself and Lazarus, this poor man who lives outside of his gate and and the rich man passes by him and they die. And what happens on the other end of death? The circumstances are inverted. That the, the rich man ends up in deep, deep spiritual poverty from which there's no escape. And the poor man is seated next to God in, in Abraham's bosom, fed and taken care of in the way that he never was. And Jesus is James, this is James's brother, remember. This is maybe his most famous confrontation with somebody about this. This is from the Gospel of Mark. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Then there's these famous words. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So Jesus himself puts to the forefront this idea of this dramatic inversion of circumstances. This apocalyptic, this unveiling of the way the world is meant to be. Saying that those who are at the head of the line now, many of them will be last, and many of those who are at the end of the line now will be first in line. There is a consistent theme, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well, that wealth is dangerous, it is not neutral. And you cannot, nor should you, accumulate and acquire wealth and think that it does not, that it cannot act on you. But the assumption is that it is acting on you, and that you have to be actively engaged in fighting the gravitational pull of wealth. 
Because wealth has within it, for some reason, this inherent logic and gravity to it that will pull you in certain directions. The direction of the closed world. That I must acquire for myself over or and against all others. That I must, if I am to be secure, the things that, that produce for me my security, they are in this world, this closed world, and I must pile around me all the things that will bring me comfort. And the Bible will consistently dig at this. And you can hear how this mindset has infiltrated the, the disciples did you hear how they are amazed that rich people have a problem going into the kingdom of heaven? Because the assumption became that good people are rich people and that rich people must be rich because they are good people. And Jesus is, is not dissecting that mentality in that particular passage. Other passages will do that where we see that, that riches often comes to people who are not good. And in fact, People become wealthy through wickedness many times. But Jesus sets aside their mentality and says, no, 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 no. This is, you think that wealth and goodness go together, but I'm telling you that the kingdom is advanced through an alternative economy, God's economy, and with God all things are possible. So here's James looking out on a world that lives by this alternative economy. It's not God's economy. The poor are trampled upon and pushed down in pursuit of their own comfort and wealth. Now, this word of warning is aimed outside the church. It is. But you should listen to the warning because it applies to us in its themes. And we should pay special attention, careful attention, because of where and when we live. Because we are far closer to the people of James 5 many times just because of where we are born and where we live. It is, it is easier for us to drift into the gravitational pool of wealth because for us in this country, wealth is so close. Tantalizingly close. Many of us have it to one degree or another. And if you don't have it, it's so close around you that your heart can easily be fixed upon it. Um, uh, next summer, my wife and I with our kids are planning on taking a, a road trip out west for a month to go to all these national parks and stuff. Um, and we, we look at our vehicle and we say, we cannot fit all of our stuff that we need for camping for that, for that long and all of our humans without murdering each other. So we, we're planning on renting a vehicle that will carry our stuff and us. And so uh, yesterday, because my kids' soccer games were canceled, we decided we're going to go to a Chevy dealership to look at the inside of vehicles that we might rent. And before I pulled in, I said, 
guys, we are not buying one of these cars, trucks, vehicles. We are just looking inside. Are we clear? Yes, we're, we're clear. And it, it turned out, like, I took Valor to the bathroom, and my daughter, like, instantly basically told the guy who had opened the car, like, hey, we're just checking out for the rental car. And I was just like, don't do that. Just don't mention. Anyway, um, we, we looked inside this, like, big, long, suburban $70,000 vehicle, and then we said, well, let's look inside of a big four-door pickup truck that has two benches. We can fit all six of us in there, and we have tons of, we can put all of our stuff in the bed of that pickup truck. And we sat in that truck, and it was sweet. It was amazing. We all fit, there's tons of room. We could fit all of our camping gear in there for sure. I could see myself shoving that salesman out of the truck and driving away, and being happier than I've ever been in my life. And I had to tell myself, we are not buying this vehicle, cannot have this. But you know what I did when I left there? I went home and I was like, what if we did buy that though? <laughs> How much would that cost every month to own that? Is it, is it, I mean, it's not crazy, is it? It is crazy. But is it, is it not crazy though? Because that would be kind of awesome. And, and what happened was it took me, I don't know, five minutes with a new car and the smell and the cleanliness. Oh my gosh, this clean vehicle. If you have children, you know how miraculous that is. And I wanted that thing. I wanted it. I, I want that thing, not past tense. I want that thing. And the whole world that we live in is constructed to get me to want it and to move towards acquiring it. And, and, and everything at that place is telling you, it doesn't matter how much you have, you can have this. It doesn't matter how much of your resources it consumes. You should have this. And everything that you can look up on the internet about cars, all the information is going to tell you, you should have this nicer thing that you want. And if you don't come get what you want, nobody's going to give it to you. You better come and get it. And it is that kind of, of proximity to wealth that just starts to edge you down this road that you can have what you want. And it does not matter who you have to step on to get there. What resources you have to hoard to get it. Crush everyone who stands in your way. Because the first will be first. And the last are the last because they're the suckers who can't climb ahead. And that is the way the world works. And that thing, James says, will be the recipient of the wrath of God. It is not the way the kingdom is meant to work. It is, in fact, actually not the way the church has worked. If anything, the church has, from the very first minute, closely aligned itself with the poor 
Jesus regularly and almost singularly hangs out with the poor. And the people who aren't poor, that are wealthy, that he hangs out with, they're the pagans and the sinners. He doesn't hang out with the, the wealthy religious people. He hangs out with the poor and the unreligious. And, and the church carries this ethos over into the New Testament immediately. In the book of Acts, the immediate attention becomes to caring for the poor, the widow, and the orphan. Church government starts to be born out of the need to properly care for the poor. I was just reading in my own personal Bible reading in Galatians where Paul is telling how he came into this position of apostleship and he's talking about the parting of ways, how he's going to go minister to the Gentiles and what is he told? He said that the apostles looked at him and said, this sounds great, do whatever you want, but do not forget the poor. That's the one reminder that he relays to the Galatians in this first chapter of Galatians. And the church carries this mark of care for the poor throughout the early stages of its history. This intense care for the poor that does not line up with the values of the society in which it lives. The rest of the Roman world basically has this idea, if you are poor, it's your fault, you deserve it. So we don't care about you. Where the church says, the poor are our people. They're the people we love. The people we're charitable to first. The people we care about first. It's why Paul is furious when he sees in Corinth that at the love feast where there's communion and feasting together, the poor are getting shunted off to the sides instead of giving the same sort of place as the rich. There is a way to spiritualize every instruction about wealth in the New Testament. And to say, well, Jesus didn't really mean, or, or they don't really mean that I might have to. But the story of the church is that the New Testament church seems to very firmly believe that one of the clearest marks of following Jesus is you care for the poor. And that, that is not a metaphor. That is, you find those who cannot feed and clothe themselves, who cannot pay their power bills, and you take care of them. Now, there, there was tiers of importance there, and, and maybe this makes you uncomfortable, but it's pretty clear that the church had a sense that their first call was to one another, that the poor among themselves was the first people who they were supposed to take care of. And we, we try to take on that model. You know, we, every, on the, the fifth Sunday of every month, we take up a deacon offering, and that deacon offering money is first and foremost for people in our congregation that have physical needs, that if they have a problem where they, they need to pay their bills and they can't or they can't buy groceries, we want to help take care of that. And you, if you give to that deacon offering, you do help take care of that. So we try to take on that model. But it is upon all of us, not just collectively, but also in our individual lives, to heed this warning from James and the rest of Scripture that wealth is dangerous. That it can suck you into this alternative world from which Jesus wants to free you. Because ultimately, the kind of world that James is describing that we so naturally live in 
It is, bears all the marks of hell. People are torn to pieces, disposed of, trampled upon, despised. And it just has all of these family characteristics, not of the kingdom of heaven, but of the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus wants to free you from that. Because here here is the truth, is that God is by His very nature marked by generosity. One of the central things that God is trying to communicate to you about Himself, I would argue, is that He is supremely generous in His goodness. And the very first lie that humans ever believed is that He was not as generous as it appears. You know, in the story of Adam and Eve, they're standing in the garden And the snake begins to whisper to them that God is holding out on them. That he has told them that they could never touch the fruit of this one tree, which isn't what he said. And if he's withholding something from them, it must be because he is not that good. And they would do better to look out for themselves. Central to our humanity is this issue. Will you live in the world as if God is a supremely generous God who supplies for you more than enough? Or do you need to fundamentally look out for yourself before everyone else? And look, this is difficult because plenty of us are on tight budgets I'm not, I don't have delusions. Many of us here are, are getting to the end of the month and saying, hope we land this plane this month. We are, we are low on wiggle room. I get that. I feel you for real. I feel you. But even in that, in this lack of wiggle room, tight breathing space, barely holding on place, wealth is still acting on you. It's coming after you. It's determining how you're deciding things and feeling things by your lack of having, even when you do not have, because this is the nature of where we live and when we live. So I want to encourage you to actively resist the ways of the world. And the the answer in the church has always been very clear. To fight the logic of this oppressive lie and the kingdom of those lies is to do the opposite of what it's telling you. The world is telling you to accumulate and accumulate and hoard and hoard and hoard. And what Jesus seems to say, what the church has always said is, what you should do is you should give away. If you you are tight and feeling the stress and the, the press of money, give it away and strip it of its power. And if you will habitually and regularly choose to give away your money, you are again and again coming to kill that snake that comes to whisper lies to you. And I'm not telling you this like, 
you know, I could use a bonus here, and I'd like you to give that money to me in my pocket, and I'll give you some sort of blessing that'll make you feel better about the world. No, no, I'm talking about murder here. I'm talking about murdering sin and everything that inside of you is longing for this. I'm talking about brutal, bloody, long-term murder of those desires. And I cannot promise to you that when you objectively set these goals to give away money to kill this thing, that well, then your life will be blessed and God will give you more stuff. No, then you're just giving to acquire more stuff, which is the opposite of what we're trying to get at here. We want to rob the stuff of its power, not figure out how to get you more of it. Murder this thing that is coming after you. Be generous. And look, you may not have money to give right now. One, I I would challenge you, you know, if your car is like mine, you should dig around in your car. You probably have some money in there that you didn't even know about. It may be in coin form. You may find some dollars in there. You forgot about it already. Just pull it out and give it away. But if, if you are finding yourself holding tight to your money, and it is hard for you to move towards generosity, we want to move in that direction with you. But if we need to start with this, let's start here. God has given you gifts, and He has given you time. And you should give it away. Maybe, maybe you do not know where you should give away your money. That's a fair question. We can help you with that. There's lots of good places to give your money away. And if you're a member of this church, we tell you, you should give money here. But if you're having trouble with how to actually directly and physically and tangibly serve the poor, we can help you with that. Give your time your talent, the treasure of your gifts and your life. Give it away. Teach yourself generosity and the generosity that you can give with your time. We are actually going to give you an opportunity to do this right now. I'm not done, but we have one of these sheets for you. Okay? These are all ways that you can give away your time and your talent here. If you don't know where to volunteer, this is often the problem. Yeah, I want to volunteer, and days later, you don't know where to volunteer, and you've forgotten, if you're like me. Maybe you're all better people than me, which I fully believe. But this sheet can say, where can I give my time away? And we will help you give your time away. Before church on a Sunday, during church on another day, we can help you figure out when the time is, where the time that you have should go. Now, you have this list right here of these opportunities, and then you have a little thing right here. It tears. Oh, well, it's supposed to tear right there. There we go. Fill out your name and drop it in there. And some of you will say, oh gosh, this feels like $200 that I just gave. Because your time is worth more to you than $200. And it will hurt. Because if I don't look after me, who will? When you drop it in there, 
it is just one small act of murdering that thing that is inside of you, coiling around you, saying you must care for yourself above all else. Above all else. God's generosity is one of the things that He most wants you to believe about Him. And we come every Sunday so that you might see how generous and good He is to you. You, you can and should practice these ways of killing the snake in your life. But if it is all about you just trying to be a better person, you will never get there. And God knows that. He knows that about you and me. And so what He did was He drove a stake into the ground so that you would forever objectively see how generous He is. The cross is God's generosity. His declaration and demonstration to the world that He is in Himself far more generous than we can ever ask or imagine. When you come to the end of yourself, when you say, I, got, I don't know how I can take care of myself. I don't know how I can keep doing that. I don't know if I can trust God to have enough for me. God's cross stands in front of you and said that He is always intending to be generous to you. And the thing that we do every week here is we eat at His table so that you will never forget that He has more than enough to supply all of your needs. And that ultimately, the end state of all of those who know and trust Jesus is feasting. This superabundance of joy and delight and provision provided for you by the generosity and the giving of God. The generosity that Paul describes as, as God setting aside everything that is rightfully His. And he, he didn't count it as something to be grasped, but instead threw it out. He emptied Himself of it and became a, a servant, a person, a man, so that you could receive the fundamental, overwhelming, never stopping, never ceasing, never coming to the bottom generosity of God. So that God could forever silence the lie of the serpent and say, yes, God actually is that good. And in Jesus, He declares it to His church all time, now and forever. God actually is the God who was and is and always will be supremely generous and good to His people. So you don't have to be invested and imprisoned in the accumulation and hoarding, hoarding of your wealth. You don't have to just look out for yourself. You don't have to be invested in only the mission of acquiring for yourself comfort because God is your comfort. Because God has everything that you need and He has more than enough of it. And He has already told you, He's declared to you, He showed you that He intends to be generous to you forever. 
And it is His generosity that can mark your heart, your life, now and forever, so that from the outside, your life almost seems reckless because from the outside, His generosity almost seems reckless, that you shouldn't be that generous to anybody else. But God is, because He is infinitely within Himself this way. He does not run out. He does not run out. You will not run out because He does not run out. He is your shepherd. He is your caretaker. And in the midst of the darkest valley of your life, when everything is piling on top of you and you feel like, I cannot pay this next bill. I cannot look for anybody else. I have to care for myself. God won't take care of me. I know it. I know that He won't. He is still your shepherd. He will lead you. He will guide you. He will bring you to still waters. And He will give you rest. He will give you rest in Him. Because in Him is plenty. There is no lack in Him. And He will never run out for you. In all the ways that the world is telling you, you must get more. It is sorely confused. Mistaken. And Jesus will free you. This morning, the cross stands in front of you as a pledge and a promise and a declaration of God's love and generosity to you. And you are called to respond. You're called to respond. You are called to respond in practical ways. To stop living for yourself. To care for the poor. To give away your money and your time. Jesus stands in front of you just like He stands in front of the rich young ruler. He says, will you let me have everything? Will you come and follow me so I can free you from that prison of everything? And you are called this morning to respond in your heart, to repent in your heart, to confess that you have doubted God, so many of us in here, and you will leave aside that doubt and turn instead to trust Him as best you can, knowing that even in your inability to trust Him, He is generous. God has made you for feasting, and He will bring you to His feast. Would you now trust Him this morning that He'll be that way to you? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your care for us. We confess that we often don't trust God, we ask that you would make us to be a people who live according to the logic and economy of your kingdom instead of the ways of this world. That our hearts would crave to be like you in generosity instead of to be like the world in accumulation of things. Lord Jesus, would you help us? As always, you have helped us. We thank you, God, that the cost of our selfishness and self-care, our self-mission is deferred to you and instead of us. 
as an act of generosity. I pray, God, that all who are here this morning, that we would look upon the cross, that we would see you triumphing over the ways of the kingdom of darkness, rescuing us from the power of sin, rescuing us from the sin inside of us. Lord Jesus, make us hungry for your feast. Make our appetites stoked that we might follow you and have all our hope in you. We thank you for this, Lord Jesus. Amen.